0: of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 11th, 2024. I am your reader, Sharon Faldudo. And from the front page of today's Gazette, Beyond affordable housing, supportive services for tenants in demand, but costs make it difficult to meet need. This is part of Iowa Ideas In-Depth Week by Marissa Payne of the Gazette in Cedar Rapids. Before she aged out of the foster care system when she turned 18 years old in June, Nivea Johnson couldn't wait to live on her own. Johnson was adopted when she was born and lived with that family until age 14, but she wasn't getting treated the right way after so long and needed to escape. She stayed with a friend for several months before ending up in the loving hands of her foster mom, Valerie, in April 2020. Valerie helped Johnson get her first car and job and taught her everything she needed to know about life. Preparing for her 18th birthday, she'd been looking for apartments and called Foundation 2 Crisis Service Hotline for help. When she did, she jumped at the chance to secure one of five new rental units dedicated to youth aging out of foster care in Cedar Rapids, Brickstone, a new $12.2 million four-story, four-story affordable housing development in Oak Hill, Jackson. Staff set her up with the Iowa Aftercare Services Network, which provides services statewide to eligible people ages 18 to 23 who have aged out of foster care, so she can meet regularly to discuss future goals or connect with other resources. With Foundation 2's help, she now has free internet access and is seeking energy assistance, a huge help in an economy that's straining household budgets, she said. It feels amazing, said Johnson, who pays $510 a month for rent. I get my own peace and quiet. It's what I've always wanted my entire life. I told myself that when I turned 18, I would get my own place and I managed to do that. I feel really accomplished. The new 44 unit facility from Des Moines based Hatch Kiernan Galloway Development opened in December at 627 6th Street Southeast in a core Cedar Rapids neighborhood. A step toward filling the community's need for more affordable housing. Services are available on site to support those tenants through a partnership with Foundation Two. Thirty-four units are reserved for tenants at or below 60% of the area median income. According to Iowa Finance Authority, $39,780 is the most a one-person household can make to qualify for this housing. Ten units are marked for tenants at or below 30% of area median income. The facility is one of few in the corridor offering that deep of a subsidy on rent to tenants, despite the fact that in Iowa, the need for rental housing geared toward those earning 0-30% to of the area median income is one of the greatest areas of demand. The state projects a shortage of 55,219 rental units serving that income bracket by 2030. Supply chain constraints have improved since COVID-19 upended production across the globe, said Debbie Durham, director of the Iowa Finance Authority and Iowa Economic Development Authority. But those problems persist while the cost to finance projects is a tall hurdle for developers facing high interest rates and construction costs. Demand for this housing grows as local officials and nonprofit service providers are moving away from shelters, a temporary fix to support those experiencing or at risk of homelessness, in favor of housing. But to keep these populations housed, residents need wraparound services and sometimes intensive case management. Housing alone isn't always enough. They often need mental health and substance use resources, financial literacy, job coaching, or other supports. Local governments and nonprofits are partnering to meet the rising demand to support residents most at risk of housing instability. They've spearheaded innovative solutions and creatively used funding to break the barriers that remain to offering both the physical housing space and the staff to help the most vulnerable residents thrive. Holly Vonderho, 56, moved to Cedar Rapids in 2017 to take a part-time teaching job at Taylor Elementary School after she was laid off from her job in Oklahoma City and no longer had a reason to stay there. She was getting by with part-time work but had no full-time prospects. Now she works 40 hours a week as a receptionist, making $15.50 an hour, but with student loans and a car that recently died, she said it can be hard to make ends meet. Vonderho lives in Oak Hill Jackson, Brickstone on 6th Street Southeast and pays $630 a month for rent. On top of that, she has a car payment and sometimes buys groceries on her credit card. She's tried to get food stamps, but she makes too much to qualify. Still, as she puts it, I've seen, the, I've seen the cheapest and I don't want to live there. It's downtown, close to the things that are going on. When things are happening, different seasons, activities, you're right there and it's nice to be part of it and not to be reminded you live in the poor neighborhood. People don't know that, Fondereau said of Brickstone. As much as she appreciates the quality of her own home, she wonders why there aren't more truly affordable places to live in the area. Oftentimes, there's a common pool of large developers, usually from out of state, and sometimes local non-profit developers who are financially able to beat these facilities, said Ellen McCabe, executive director of the Housing Trust Fund of Johnson County. When new entities try to pursue a project, she said, they typically are surprised by how hard it can be because you must layer many different sources of funding. Even the most subsidized housing, if the developer successfully cobbles together funding, doesn't always come with the needed services to help tenants, McCabe said. It's especially hard for developers to make these facilities pencil out with the rising costs of labor and materials, along with high interest rates and land prices. It really does take the community and the state to partner with developers to make these projects cash flow at the end of the day and keep the rent at a level that families and individuals can afford, Durham said. Also from the front page, science of reading bill aims to boost literacy. Reynolds pushes new guidelines for teachers by Tom Barton of the Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Iowa elementary school teachers would be required to teach literacy using the techniques commonly known as the science of reading under legislation being advanced by Iowa lawmakers. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds in her annual Condition of the State Address last month said Iowa needs to increase reading outcomes for elementary students. Last year, the Iowa Statewide Assessment of Student Progress reported 34 percent of third graders were not yet proficient in language and writing skills, with 56 percent qualifying as proficient and 10 percent as advanced. Multiple studies have shown that students who are not able to read by third grade face much greater challenges in future academic success and beyond. We all know that unlocking a child's potential begins with reading, Mackenzie Snow, director of the Iowa Department of Education, told lawmakers last week. Reynolds bill, House Study Bill 650, would require Iowa colleges and universities to train teachers in a science of reading evidence-based literacy program. Iowa teacher licensure candidates in early childhood elementary, K-12 reading and literacy preparation, as well as special education programs would have to pass the Foundations of Reading assessment to graduate. The state would also invest $3.1 million for current teachers to take and pass the test without within the next three years by July 1, 2027. Iowa is the only state in the nation that does not require teachers to pass a reading instruction competency test to earn an education degree license. Separate legislation, Senate Study Bill 3069, also would prohibit teaching students to infer meaning based on semantics, syntax, and visual cues, often called the three cueing method. The reading instruction required under the bill would include emphasis on phonics, phonemic awareness, phonological awareness, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. Jillian Carlson, a lobbyist for the Board of Regents that governs the state public universities, said the science of reading concepts are taught to prospective teachers at the three universities. She said she has concerns about prohibiting the 3Qing method of literacy education that may be beneficial for some students, like those learning English as a second language. Literacy experts and parents of students with reading struggles and dyslexia, though, said the three-queuing method of instruction reinforces bad reading habits and teaches kids to mask their reading struggles rather than learn reading fundamentals. They said the state should prioritize methods that are evidence-based and proven it to improve comprehension. And from inside the Gazette front page, the Gazette staff wins 40 awards in an annual statewide contest by the Gazette. The Gazette staff was honored with general excellence among the state's largest multi-day papers and 39 other awards during the annual Iowa Newspaper Association Convention. The awards were presented during a banquet Thursday in Des Moines. Longtime news editor Mary Sharp was honored with the Association's Distinguished Service Award, an honor bestowed by past recipients. Sharp had a nearly 35 career in Burlington, Ottumwa, Champaign, Illinois, and Cedar Rapids before, quote, retiring in 2011. Sharp, who has edited the derecho and flood recovery books, came back to the Gazette a couple years later and continues to copy it several nights a week. Social video producer Bailey Seashon was honored as a Mauck Stouffer young Iowa journalist for work on Curious Iowa and other features. Reporter Brittany Miller was honored as the young Iowa journalist from the Wagner Family Prize in recognition for her ongoing environmental work. Miller is a core member with Report for America. Reporter Elijah Decius was honored with the Ken Fusen Writing Award. The award goes to the best writing in any category and any class of the competition. Reporter Emily Anderson was honored with the Skip Weber Investigative Reporting Award for the second consecutive year for the reporting she did on police officers being hired to Iowa departments despite having criminal records. The Gazette finished second and points to the Iowa Falls Times Citizen as Newspaper of the Year an award the paper last won in the 1980s. From the Iowa Today page, More Private Schools Seeking Accreditation by Grace King of the Gazette. When longtime public school teacher Katie Christensen sent her oldest son to kindergarten, she began dreaming about an alternative education where students could explore their environments. About six years later, she opened a non-public school in downtown Iowa City called Tamarack Discovery School, where students spent half the day learning outside the classroom walls in their community and in nature. Christensen said when her two boys were enrolled in the Iowa City School District, they had the most amazing teachers, but her sons are super active. One needed to be challenged more. The other needed more support in school, she said. I wondered if there was a way to find a balance, offer something more, said Christensen, who is one of the founders and head of School of Tamarack. The pandemic furthered her interest in creating an indoor-outdoor learning model, she said. It was a good time to try something new, she said. The school opened its doors in fall of 2020. Tamarack is one of 11 non-public schools in the state listed by the Iowa Department of Education as new in 2023. While some schools such as Tamarack have been open for years or even decades, they still are listed as new because they are pursuing accreditation for the first time, said Heather Doe, spokeswoman for the Education Department. Accreditation gives non-public schools eligibility for the families they serve to apply for education savings accounts, taxpayer-funded financial assistance to attend a private K-12 school. The 23-24 school year is the first year families have had that option. While it takes about three years for the accreditation process to be completed, families with students accepted at those schools may be eligible now for the education savings accounts, although there are income requirements until the program is fully phased in. About 16,700 students across the state used an education savings account, currently worth $7,598 annually, at a private school as of the October 1st certified enrollment date costing the state an estimated $127.3 million in the first year. There are 36,195 Iowa students enrolled in non-public schools. Christensen said she hopes to someday bring the indoor-outdoor classroom model to public schools to give all students the opportunity to learn this way. But in the meantime, families having access to public funds to attend non-public schools has increased the socioeconomic diversity of students at Tamarack. We're reaching kids who wouldn't otherwise have this opportunity, she said. Tamarack is a pre-kindergarten to sixth grade school where the teacher-to-student ratio is one to eight or fewer, Christensen said. There are about 60 students currently enrolled. At one of Tamarack's two campuses, on three acres of land in North Liberty, it was given stewardship of by the owners. Students learn to identify trees and birds, track animal prints, and learn about stewardship of the earth. Christensen sees students building self-esteem, growing physically stronger, working collaboratively and creatively, and taking ownership of their own learning, she said. Other non-public schools listed as new by the state simply changed addresses, Doe said. Because of that change, the school was assigned a new building number in the state system. Building numbers are unique identifier codes the Iowa Department of Education uses to identify buildings. Tri-State Christian School, for example, which opened in Dubuque in 2018, completed construction of a second campus in August 2023, triggering the state listing it as new. Jordahl Academy, which moved from the BCLUW Community School District area in Conrad to Norwalk, also was listed as new because of the change, Doe said. Non-public schools have two options for accreditation in Iowa, general accreditation by the state through a comprehensive site visit or independent accreditation through a state-approved independent accrediting agency. State-approved independent accrediting agencies include the Association of Christian Schools International Christian Schools International, Independent Schools Association of the Central States, the National Lutheran School Accreditation American, and American Montessori Society, for example. Turning to the week in Iowa, a recap of news from across the state. Under the heading, In the News, Bill defines man and woman. Iowa Republican lawmakers advanced a bill this past week that would define man and woman in a state law and require transgender Iowans to note both their pre- and post-transition genders on some legal documents. Activists stomped, shouted, and chanted outside a committee room Tuesday in vehement opposition to the proposal by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds that they say would erase transgender Iowans from state code. The bill would allow state agencies and centers to use a person's biological sex to determine services and accommodations. Reynolds said last week it was necessary to protect women's spaces. There will be a public hearing on the bill Monday. Cannabis regulations floated. Iowa GOP lawmakers moved a bill to give the state more oversight over consumable hemp products or cannabis products derived from hemp. The products, which are legal under federal legislation, can have psychoactive effects similar to traditional marijuana. The bill would allow state regulators to set a potency cap on products sold in the state. Teamsters threaten strikes. A Teamsters union in Iowa is calling for rolling strikes across the state in response to a bill that would put more regulations on public employee unions in Iowa and require a public employer to submit a list of employees to state regulators. Teamsters 238 principal officer Jesse Chase Case said the bill would effectively end all public sector unions in the state of Iowa. Cities could have more control over libraries. A proposal to give city councils more authority over public libraries would bring partisan political decision-making into library operations, including book selection. Dozens of public library officials and supporters warned state lawmakers Thursday at the Iowa Capitol. The legislator, who managed the bill during Thursday's hearing, said his goal is not to address the selection of books, but instead to provide elected local officials with more authority over the spending of taxpayer dollars. The bill would eliminate the requirement that a city's voters approve any proposal to alter the composition manner of selection or change of a library board or its replacement instead a city council would be able to hire a library director and use library funds for library projects and initiatives by passing an ordinance without voter approval lawmakers proposed tuition limits iowa house republicans and democrats proposed dueling legislation to try to limit tuition costs in the state last week Republicans want to cap the annual increase in tuition at 3%, while the Democrats' bill proposes a statewide freed on tuition costs. Bill would allow state-level immigration enforcement. State courts would be permitted to order the deportation of undocumented immigrants arrested in Iowa, and local officials would be given legal immunity when assisting in immigration enforcement measures under a bill advanced in the Iowa Senate. The bill would create a state crime for migrants who enter or re-enter the state illegally from another country and would give Iowa law enforcement authority to arrest undocumented immigrants in the state. Under the heading, they said, specifically in the last election, I think we saw a lot of party affiliated people get involved in a space that we've not seen them get involved in. And so when you begin to down this pathway, we need to have a conversation. Is this the direction we're going? Representative Brooke Bowden, Republican Indianola, on a bill to make local elections partisan. And, our town has fewer than 500 people, so I come from a very rural area. This bill is a train wreck. It opens up all sorts of possibilities for very disastrous consequences if you get an activist city council that starts seesawing on what they believe for a library or not to be. Wade Dooley, chair of Albion Library Board of Trustees. Under the heading Odds and Ends, Obscene Performances, People who expose minors to an obscene performance could be prosecuted and charged with a misdemeanor under a bill advanced by lawmakers. While the bill is not explicitly aimed at drag shows, some people told lawmakers it could lead to lawsuits targeting those performances. Looting offense. Lawmakers advanced a bill that established the crime of looting and made it punishable as up to a Class C felony. The bill was inspired by incidents of smash-and-grab robberies seen in other states, said the Republican who led the subcommittee. Under the heading Water Cooler, Border deployment. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds will send another group of Iowa law enforcement officials to the Texas border to assist with border security efforts, she said last week. Reynolds visited the border last weekend alongside Texas Governor Greg Abbott and several other GOP governors. And UI lawsuit. A former orchestra conductor at the University of Iowa is suing the school alleging sexual harassment and discrimination. Melissa Brunet's lawsuit claims one of Brunet's supervisors made frequent sexual comments to Brunet and invited her to spend the weekend at his home. Turning to the insight page, we have a guest column from Madeline Rocha-Smith, Madeline Rocha-Smith. She, her is communications and events manager at One Iowa. Rights under attack, LGBTQ plus Iowans draw strength from marriage fight to oppose a wave of discriminatory bills in Iowa. In the face of hatred, unity is our strongest ally. As we confront an unprecedented wave of discriminatory legislation aimed at LGBTQ Iowans, our collective fight for equality has never been more important. But this struggle hasn't always defined us. 15 years ago, Iowa stood proudly as the third state in the nation to legalize same-sex marriage. And that historic achievement was not handed to us. It was the result of tireless advocacy and unwavering commitment to justice. There was a statewide effort to change hearts and minds about LGBTQ plus people. Advocates door-knocked, held town halls, showed up at the Capitol and rallied for the cause. It took years of grassroots advocacy, but on April 3rd, 2009, their efforts propelled Iowa to the forefront of equality. Fast forward to the present, and we find ourselves bombarded with order fo- over 40 proposed bills designed to strip away civil rights, marginalize LGBTQ plus Iowans, and weaponize religion to justify discrimination. Notably, this unprecedented wave of legislation disproportionately targets transgender Iowans with a glaring emphasis on transgender youth. HSB 649 would issue special driver's licenses and birth certificates to transgender Iowans that indicate their transgender status. HF 2082 would remove gender identity as a protected class from the Iowa Civil Rights Act. HSB 588 would narrowly define the term woman to attempt to exclude transgender, intersex, and other women that they assume do not fit their vague definition. SF 2037 would prevent cities and counties from restricting conversion therapy. HF 2060 would prevent gender-neutral language from being taught in certain world language courses. SF-2055 would prevent transgender Iowans from using the appropriate restrooms. SF-2129 would annul same-sex marriage at the federal level. It's become abundantly clear that Governor Kim Reynolds and Republicans at the Capitol have a strategic tactic to wear us down and make us lose hope. But we can't afford to waver, not now, not ever. We must draw strength from our legacy of resilience and channel the spirit of the advocates and allies allies who bravely fought 15 years ago for marriage equality." Our history shows us that when a collective movement for equality unites, anything is possible. Our action today will shape the future for generations to come. I know this is true because I am a direct recipient of the privileges afforded to me by the grassroots advocates that came before me. Everyone has a stake in ensuring Iowa's legacy of equality, justice, and dignity for all. So show up at the Capitol, attend a one Iowa rally, have hard conversations with your friends and family. It's not enough to complain at the water cooler about how far right Iowa has gone. We need you to take action. They may attempt to erase our hard fought progress, but they cannot erase Iowa's history or our ability to shape our future. What once defined us can resurface again. Althea Cole writes in her To A Candid World column With disaster averted, protesters get slap on the wrist. On the morning of Tuesday, February 6th, an account on X bearing the name Izzy Nation posted a picture of a young transgender woman taking a selfie in front of a bathroom mirror while dressed in professional attire. The post was captioned, "'Dog, look at my defendant, she's going to prison.'" Later that morning, while wearing the same outfit, the photo, the person in that photo, Izzy Kippis, went on trial for charges stemming from an act committed when conservative commentator and provocateur, Matt Walsh appeared at the University of Iowa on the evening of April 19, 2023. Walsh spoke to a capacity crowd at the Iowa Memorial Union after an afternoon screening of his documentary, "'What is a Woman?' Kippis and co-defendant Elizabeth Jorgensen, also a transgender woman, were charged with criminal mischief in the fifth degree and disorderly conduct for dropping a large quantity of marbles on a hard floor at the top of the staircase near a major point of entry into the IMU building, which caused a significant safety hazard to hundreds of people nearby. Like two halves of a pecan, Kippus and Jorgensen are nuts from the same shell. They reside together in Iowa City, which made them easier for police to identify and locate. They protest the things leftists like to protest together. They committed their devious act together and being represented already by the same criminal defense attorney, they went on trial together for the identical charges of disorderly conduct and criminal mischief in the fifth degree. Kippis and Jorgensen did not deny that they were two individuals who dropped a crap ton of little glass rolling things around a big crowd. Not that there was much of a point in denying it, surveillance images and videos introduced as evidence for the state explained to the jury by UA Police Department Ian Mallory were able to link the defendants to the act through the backpacks they wore on their way into the building. None of the surveillance evidence presented by the state actually showed Kippis and Jorgensen dumping the marbles. Instead, Mallory pieced together surveillance video showing two people crossing the Iowa River on the footbridge toward the IMU wearing the backpacks, the shape and sag of which indicated that the items inside were fairly weighty. At one point in the video, one of the individuals, Jorgensen, briefly strains to lift their backpack after setting it down for a quick break. Shortly after, footage shows Jorgensen setting the backpack down on the ground at Hubbard Park, a large open grassy area directly south of the IMU building where protesters had gathered in force. After setting down the backpack, Jorgensen walks around the IMU building, testing several doors from the exterior. Some were locked. Police had observed some concerning info on social media before the event about potential security issues. As a result, officials had planned several measures in advance, including controlling building access so event goers could only enter through certain doors. After Jorgensen returned to the park and picked up the backpack that had been set down minutes earlier, security footage shows that both individuals entered the IMU with their backpacks through one of the few accessible entrances. Minutes later, the marbles were dumped and spotted by on-site police officer Sarah Sand, who couldn't make out the identities of the culprits before they left, but found the backpacks they left behind, both with marbles still inside. Leaving the backpacks for police to find turned out to be perhaps the second biggest mistake Kippis and Jorgensen made that evening. The unique color and pattern of one of them led police to the roommate radicals who were spotted leaving the IMU without the backpacks they'd worn into the building on timestamp footage that lines up with the marble dropping. It almost seems surprising that two people with their intellect and education, Jorgensen, 27, is a software engineer and Kippus, 26, is a cancer researcher, would make such a silly error. But apparently there's no time to effectively plan devious acts when evil fascist bigots like Matt Walsh are on your turf and other evil fascist bigots need to be punished for wanting to hear his remarks. Things got dicey for a bit there. The UI student organization hosting Walsh, Young Americans for Freedom, had not charged money for the tickets. The organization's national sponsor requires that events be free and open to the public in order to sponsor speaking fees. They also had not capped the number of tickets to be obtained by interested event goers. Mallory estimated that tickets were overdispersed by an amount perhaps double the capacity of the IMU Main Lounge, the largest gathering area in the building where Walsh's speech was given. That amounted to a very large number of intended event goers who were not granted access to the event. They had been waiting in a long and very large line next to a second long and very large line of loudly chanting protesters. The two sides were separated only by about five feet and a line of stanchions, standing posts with ropes connected between them to help control crowds that were hastily set up to encourage some well-advised distance. It doesn't take much for a group of neon-haired oddballs shouting F.U. fascist at a group of disgust- disgusted conservatives to quickly devolve into a melee. Somewhere down in hell, Franco and Mussolini are laughing at these goofballs' understanding of fascism. But when, they told, when told by police that they would absolutely not be getting into the event, some eventgoers turned around to discover a flood of marbles rolling around on the floor, separating them from the door through which they'd entered earlier and through which they intended to leave right then. I think I wrote WTF next to my note," said Mallory, who testified for the state at the Little Miss Marxist trial last week. Several police officers already on site for event security were needed to clear the area. A decision was made to close the south entrance, said Mallory, as by that point it was basically unusable. Were any of the event goers or protesters to to have scaled the marbles only to slip and fall, the amount of chaos and calamity that could have ensued cannot be overstated. Furthermore, were people to have experienced serious injury from slipping on the marbles and falling, Kippis and Jorgensen's legal liability, of course they still would have been caught, could have been significantly more severe. As luck would have it, none of that happened. It was the steadfast and diligent efforts of the police officers on site that ensured no injuries occurred. Ironically, those efforts by police also likely ensured that the defendant's acts didn't earn them more serious charges like felony willful injury. Izzy Kippis and Elizabeth Jorgensen really should thank University of Iowa Police for helping them stay out of jail. Instead, Kippus and Jorgensen will suffer no more than a slap on the wrist. A verdict of guilty was delivered by the jury Thursday for the count of disorderly conduct, a simple misdemeanor punishable by no more than 30 days in jail, and a fine of not more than $855. I don't expect that either will actually serve time. On the other count, criminal mischief in the fifth degree, the jury was deadlocked and therefore could not return a guilty verdict. It's a halfway decent win for their defense attorney, Gina Messimer of Parish Crudenire Law Firm of Des Moines, Messimer, who I'd probably want in my corner if I needed a criminal defense, will be spending more time in Johnson County in the upcoming weeks and months defending other clients for protest-related charges. Iowa City's finest radicals have had a busy season, but it's best to tackle these cases one at a time. In the meantime, if Kippas and Jorgensen want to continue sticking it to the man and protesting for justice and whatnot, they should try something that doesn't actually put other people's safety at risk. Whatever happened to just super-gluing oneself to the wall? And Todd Dorman writes in his 24-hour Dorman column, we're all under the dome of unneeded bills. So I was digging in the fridge when I found a carton of eggnog. I remember my mother telling me to never drink eggnog in February. But it's only several weeks past its use-by date. Besides, I love eggnog and always do what I want to keep Christmas in my heart, or in this case, in my gut, all year long. I poured a healthy glass, added a little bourbon for sanitizing purposes, belatedly toasted the holidays, and a quick end to the current legislative session. It wasn't long before I started to feel funny. Uh-oh, I thought. Mom was right. Then came hallucinations. Christmas? Legislature? Heart music indicating a dream sequence. Suddenly, the iceberg I was riding on crashed at the foot of a golden dome that rose skyward. Halt! Who goes there? came a voice through the fog. I am, I am an obscure columnist. Who are you? I'm the sergeant-at-arms under the golden dome of misfit bills. So what's your name, sergeant? that's just it. My name is Corporal. It's all wrong. That's why I work under the dome of misfit bills. I'm a misfit. Cue the music. We're all under the dome of misneeded bills sponsored by hacks and political shills. But when funnel day is nigh, the worst of us will surely die. Bills galore on the House and Senate floor. They could become our laws, and it's all because of the enacting clause. A donation from Jimmy, a donation from Sue, the size that will clearly say, here's what you do. When funnel day arrives, bills they bought surely will survive. With this, the misfits began to speak up. How would you like to be an elephant who can't remember history? Or a flag that says our liberties we prize and our rights we will maintain, flying over a state slashing reproductive rights, segregating transgender Iowans and banning books. Or an attorney general who is supposed to be the top law enforcement officer, but endorsed a presidential candidate facing 91 criminal charges and a crime victims advocate who cut off funding to rape victims for emergency contraception. We're all misfits. How would you like to be a public library bill that harms public libraries? Or an area education agency reform bill that would kneecap the agencies? Or a bill expanding the length of postpartum Medicaid coverage while also reducing the number of women who would be eligible for care? Or a school safety bill that lets teachers carry guns that shoot real bullets, not jelly? How about being a fish that flies because I can't survive in Iowa's polluted water? Or a beach where no one can swim? Hi, I'm the hemp products regulation bill that would take away one more thing that makes living here bearable. We're all misfits, and that's being charitable. Music again, please. So we're under a dome of unneeded bills filed by nutjobs who really are shrill. When funnel day is near, it would be wonderful, 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 wonderful if we would all disappear. Hey, Corporal, who is that flying over us with a big sled full of gifts? That's the governor. She's headed to a big party on Hog Barren Island. It figures. More heart music as obscure columnist awakens. Wow, that was some hallucination. Maybe I'll have more and more eggnog just to see how it ends. Happy Funnel Week to all who celebrate. And turning to the community letters and today's editorial cartoon from Clay Bennett, Syndicated Columnist, distributed by CounterPoint Media. It's the seal that we see, the eagle, with holding the arrows and the branch. It says presidential, but the shield that is usually underneath the eagle, which is today labeled immunity, has fallen to the ground. The first letter today is from Elaine Hughes of Independence. Support HF 2029 for water quality. I am writing this letter in support of House File 2029, which has been introduced to the Iowa House Environmental Protection Committee. This bill is critical to the improvement of Iowa's water quality by requiring the establishment of riparian protection and funding. Iowa's rivers, creeks, and lakes are degraded. One of the best measures for the prevention of soil, farm chemicals, and animal waste runoff into our streams and lakes is the establishment of buffer strips 30 to 50 feet wide between the farm fields and bodies of water. Living on the bank of the Wapsipinican River, I was amazed at the abundance of wildlife in and around the water. I cannot envision living in a state devoid of wildlife. The river was a source of recreation with boating, children playing in the water, kayaking and fishing popular pastimes. The campground located on the riverbank was always full in the spring, summer and fall. The University of Minnesota and the University of Iowa are collaborating on a women's study evaluating nitrate intake from drinking water and cancer risk. They found women with higher average nitrate levels in their water supplies, had an increased risk for for several types of cancers. Due to the importance of clean water as a vital resource for human consumption, recreation and wildlife sustainability, I have requested the Environmental Protection Committee assign this bill to subcommittee to begin the process of moving the bill forward. Public support is necessary for the advancement of this bill. Elaine Hughes of Independence. Next, Hal Pennick of Iowa City writes, majority does not understand democracy. I'm confused. The governor and state legislature champion law and order, yet the governor sends the Iowa National Guard and state patrol to Texas to support its open defiance of a Supreme Court order. While the Iowa Constitution says the General Assembly shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, public tax dollars are being used to subsidize attendance at private schools that are 85% religiously affiliated. While continuing, continually arguing that the states are closer to the people and are thus better able to administer federal programs, the legislature denies local governments the authority to make local decisions. Likewise, parental rights of Iowans are protected only if they correspond to those accorded by state decree. Maybe it is not just me who is confused. Maybe the governor and legislative majority just don't understand the difference between democracy and hypocrisy. Hal Penick of Iowa City. Next, Mike Streb of Iowa City writes, greatest dr- greatest threat to democracy is debt. Both political parties point to the other as a threat to democracy. However, the greatest threat to democracy is the nation's growing indebtedness. People much smarter than me keep warning that we are on an unsustainable path. The government cannot keep adding to the debt faster than the economy grows. If there were another world war, the fight would start with a debt to GDP ratio comparable to what the nation had at the end of World War II. Politicians get blamed, but they merely reflect what the American people want. And we demand ever more spending and low taxes. Entitlement spending must be put on a sustainable path. This can and should be done while protecting those most in need. Economic history teaches that conditions change slowly and then all at once. At some point, those holding our debt will say, enough. A level of economic pain could be reached that we welcome rule by a strong man. That is the threat to democracy. Mike Streb of Iowa City. And the last letter from Stephen Kemble of Cedar Rapids. 17-year-olds should not have guns. On January 9th, in her condition of the state address, Governor Kim Reynolds said last week the unthinkable happened in Iowa when shots were fired in the halls of Perry High School, taking the life of 11-year-old Amir Jolliffe and injuring seven others. The shootings in Perry were far from unthinkable. Reynolds shamed herself in minimizing what is an everyday experience in the U.S. Yes, guns are useful for hunting, necessary for law enforcement and national defense, entertaining for people who enjoy marksmanship and interesting to those who appreciate the craftsmanship and beauty of a well-designed firearm. But they are a menace in the hands of people unskilled in their use, ignorant of their dangers, who have vile intentions or cannot master their emotions. Those concerned about personal safety ought to be able to own a firearm. If they have the practical knowledge of their dangers, the training to use them safely, and the good intent to never use them purely to punish or injure others. The Constitution's Second Amendment speaks of guns for a well-regulated militia. It didn't mean that everyone, especially 17-year-olds, ought to have a gun to use however they wish. To heck with Reynolds and others who lack the good intent or character to safely, reasonably regulate the sale and use of firearms to anyone, simply because they want one. Stephen Kimball of Cedar Rapids. And some quotes of the week. First, Representative Steve Holtz, Republican Denison, advocating new limits on consumable hemp products. Representative Holt says, so it's sort of the wild, wild west out here in a lot of ways. With THC-infused drinks being able to be served to minors, a lot of other things going on that are not acceptable. Next, Representative Bob Kressig, Democrat Cedar Falls, expressing concerns that people who need hemp products would lose access under legislation. I'll just admit I use it. I use it to sleep at night because this job and the stress and stuff, it works. Next, Representative Josh Turek, Democrat Council Bluffs, Opposing a bill that would pay bounties for raccoon tails, Representative Turek says, In a state where we're defunding water quality sensors, it's fiscally irresponsible to put any sort of appropriation on something like this. This is what people get frustrated about with national level. In the state level, is us putting funding toward this and not addressing larger issues. Next, Matt Rollinger, in a letter announcing his resignation from the Linmar School Board, says, I can only apologize to them for not being able to complete my term on the board. The position has allowed me to gain substantial knowledge, and I hope to continue to serve my community and other capacities in the future. And finally, Governor Kim Reynolds, in a statement after the death of former Iowa Secretary of Agriculture Bill Northey, Bill was a great leader whose work ethic and passion for Iowa agriculture was unmatched. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 11th, 2024 on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. I'm your reader, Sharon Faljudo, and we turn to today's obituaries. We have two other notices. From Center Point, Walter Cook, age 87, died February 7th. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Center Point, handling arrangements. And Daisy Beebe, age 86, of Marengo, died February 8th. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion, assisting the family. Dale Gerst, age 93 of Anamosa, died January 31st at the Anamosa Care Center. Funeral services will be 10:30 a.m. Tuesday, February 13th at St. Paul Lutheran Church, Anamosa. Reverend Rodney Bloom will officiate. Burial will be in Riverside Cemetery. Friends may call from 8:30 a.m. to the time of service at the church. Dale was employed in a variety of jobs. He worked for the Jones County Road Department, drove dairy and feed trucks, and worked at the Anamosa Reformatory. He also owned and operated the Gerst Farmer's Market with his wife. Dale also drove the special needs school bus for 22 years. Robert Robertson Sr., known as Bob of Middle Amana, age 84, passed away February, 16th, February 6th at Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids. A visitation will be held Saturday, February 17th from 1 to 3 p.m. with sharing of memories beginning at 3 p.m. at the Cedar Memorial Park Chapel State Room. Bob proudly served in the United States Air Force for over 25 years. Wilbert R. Bain Jr., known as Bill of Cedar Rapids, passed away January 7th at Cottage Grove Place in Cedar Rapids. He was an Air Force reservist and retired as a technical writer for Rockwell Collins. He enjoyed boating, woodworking, photography, and traveling. A Celebration of Life Gathering will be held at 3 p.m. Sunday, February 25th at Granite City. 4755 First Avenue Southeast in Cedar Rapids. Nancy Ng Peterson Snyder, age 85, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully on January 31st, surrounded by her loving family. A memorial service will be held 11 a.m. Saturday, February 24th, at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories, 4200 First Avenue Northeast in Cedar Rapids. The burial will be at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. A visitation luncheon will follow. Nancy enjoyed teaching elementary school until choosing to dedicate herself to her family and volunteering. She was active in the Junior League of Cedar Rapids and volunteered at Grantwood Elementary School. Nancy filled every room with light, life, and laughter. She was the gracious host of countless parties at her home. She was the cool mom that her kids' friends wanted to visit. She was the thoughtful neighbor who always checked in. She seemed to know people wherever she met. So a trip to Lowe's could take hours when she ran into an old friend or made a new friend of the salesperson. At the family cabin in Troy Mills, she was voted Queen of the Boat Parade by her river neighbors. Beverly Ann Benefer, RN, BSN, MAFAAN, died February 3rd at John Knox Village, Westlaco, Texas. She lived life with vigor and enthusiasm. Bev loved spending time with family, friends, and pets. She was an active community volunteer as well as being involved with her church. She loved international travel, cruises, and playing cards and games with friends, as well as the hobbies of flying, swimming, wood carving, and working with stained glass, and was a winter Texan for 25 years before permanently relocating from Iowa to John Knox Village in West O. Texas. A visitation will be held from 10 a.m. until time of funeral service, 11 a.m. Monday, February 12th, at Cedar Memorial Park Chapel of Memories in Cedar Rapids. Interment will follow at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. James William Baker, age 60, of Denver, Colorado, formerly of Cedar Rapids. With heavy hearts and profound sadness, we share the devastating news of the unexpected passing of Jim on January 26th. Memorial service, 12 p.m. Saturday, February 17th at TN Funeral Home by Pastor Kurt Veenstra. Friends may visit the family after 11 a.m. Jim had an infectious humor and zest for life. He had a unique ability to bring laughter and joy to any room. His genuine laughter was contagious, and his quick wit always had us in stitches. Beyond his humor, he had a heart full of love and took immense pride in watching those he cared about succeed. And turning to the sports page, as you may know by now, today is Super Bowl Sunday. The teams playing are the Kansas City Chiefs, who are 11-6, versus the San Francisco 49ers, who are 12-5. and 5. That is taking place at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas today. The kickoff is at 5.30 p.m., on KGAN Locally. That is the CBS affiliate if you're not in a KGAN area. The line is the 49ers by 2.5. And today the Gazette has written an above-the-page sports story about the Super Bowl from Marion to Kinnick Stadium to the Super Bowl. Marion native Chrisanne Reither living out football dream as part of the San San Francisco 49ers front office by John Stepp of the Gazette. Growing up in Marion, Chrisanne Reifer really, really loved football from a very young age. She would read the Gazette sports section and metaphorically eat stats while literally eating her weedy cereal. When Reese Morgan recruited her older brother Brian to be a walk-on at Iowa, she was right there with them at a pregame recruiting event in the old bubble practice facility. Or Brian, As Brian, or Bump, as football co- coach Kirk Ferentz fondly remembers him, played at Iowa in the early 2000s, she was at every game in the family section behind the Iowa bench. Learned half of my vocabulary from Phil Parker during those games, Ryther said of Iowa's oft-profane defensive coordinator. I love double P. The football-loving kid from Marion, roughly two decades later, now has a chance to soon don a Super Bowl ring since she works in the San Francisco 49ers front office. Ryther is the executive assistant to Parag Marath, the president of 49ers Enterprises and executive vice president of football operations, who also serves as chairman of the British soccer franchise Leeds United. That's a long way of saying Ryder has to plan and organize a lot in my job. I'm basically like the chief problem solver, I guess you could say, without that being my actual title, Ryder said. Ryder wakes up at 5.30 a.m., goes to bed about 8 p.m., and her phone, for better or for worse, is attached to my body for everything in between. She even has her morning workout and breakfast at the team facility. This is such a competitive business, Ryder said. We all have one goal. When it comes down to it, though, we're dipping our toe into a whole bunch of different things with the 49ers. Our ultimate goal is to win our sixth Super Bowl. The competitiveness was evident when she needed to create a transatlantic travel itinerary and write a bio on a prospective investor in two hours as part of the grueling interview process for the job. As Ryder works mostly with Maref as well as President of Football Operations John Lynch and CEO Jed York, she has been a sponge as she learns from an executive team that has such good symmetry together. This has been a cool experience and a valuable experience. Because I've been getting to see so much of the football ops on the side of the 49ers and what we're doing to maintain a good roster, a competitive roster, be competitive for salary cap, Ryther said. But then also seeing the other side of the coin where we're working with investors and we own this soccer club that is a historically great club. Those on Eveshevsky Drive could foresee Ryther's success in San Francisco coming after what she did for the Hawkeyes. For the 49ers to recognize that, I'm not at all surprised, Farron said. Everything about her was first class when she was here. She spent five seasons with the Hawkeyes as the recruiting operations and special event coordinator, which were some of the best years of my life. Scott Southmade, Iowa's football director of player personnel, described Ryther as a really a go-getter. Whatever she could be involved in, she wanted to be involved in, Southmade said. That included office operations, recruiting, team travel, camps, and work as a parental liaison. A little of everything, Southmade said with a laugh. In women's basketball, is today the day for Clark? Clark needs 38 to tie, 39 to pass Plum, but the win's the thing, by Jeff Linder of the Gazette. Home or away, national television or streaming service. Caitlin Clark's pursuit of the NCAA Division I women's basketball scoring record has reached its crescendo. 38 points to catch Kelsey Plum, 39 to pass. Now it's a matter of when and where. Clark in the second ranked Iowa Hawkeyes, twenty one and two overall, eleven and one in the Big Ten, take their show on the road for a Sunday meeting with Nebraska, fifteen and eight, seven and five. Tip off is noon at Pinnacle Bank Arena in Lincoln. Our number one priority will be to win the game, Iowa coach Lisa Bluter said after the Hawkeyes one hundred eleven to ninety three win over Penn State on Thursday. However, I would rather have her break it here at Carver. The fans deserve it. Kelsey Plum scored 3,527 points in a career at Washington that concluded in 2017. Clark's total stands at 3,489. Clark scored 21 points in the first half Thursday, then turned to role of facilitator in the second half and finished the game with 27 points and 15 assists. The night instead belonged to Hannah Stolke, who smashed her career high with 47 points, also setting a Carver record, women's or men's. Clark is averaging 32.2 points per game. At this rate... She will break the record on Thursday at Carver against Michigan. However, Clark traditionally scores big against Nebraska. In the Hawkeyes' 92-73 victory over the Huskers on January 27th, she scored 38. Clark was not made available to local media post-game Thursday. However, she did agree to speak with several national writers at Carver and said, "'Honestly, I don't feel that much pressure. It's just a matter of when it's going to happen, whether it's back home against Michigan or the next game on the road. This wasn't always the case. Early in my career, I would get nervous for games.' My maturity has grown a lot, knowing I can impact a game whether my shots are falling or not. Bluter echoed that. This is the time of Clark's life, Bluter said. She's enjoying every minute of it. Every person is different, but this has been no burden to her. If Clark breaks the record today, it will happen in front of a nationally televised crowd on FS1. Thursday's game against Michigan will be streamed on Peacock. Home or away, Bluter does not expect the game to be stopped at that moment, but I might decide to call a timeout. Still, the priority is to leave Lincoln with a win. A record, even one of this magnitude, would seem hollow in a loss, especially with the Hawkeyes tied with Ohio State for the Big Ten lead with six games to go. Iowa has won nine straight against Nebraska. The Huskers have been a mystery this season, and a microcosm of that came in the last two games. Last Saturday, lowly Rutgers went to Lincoln and earned its first Big Ten win of the season, 71-70. Three days later, the Huskers got a quality road win against Michigan, 65-59. They're up and they're down, and they're smack dab on the NCAA bubble. Raining on Iowa's and Clark's Parade Sunday certainly would enhance their resume. In Boys State Swimming Meet, Poliak closes career with two more titles, West Set Standard in 200 Medley Relay by Mike Condon Correspondent. The plan worked out perfectly for Joe Poliak. In his fourth year of swimming at the state meet, the Iowa City High senior knew what to expect. He also knew the preliminary numbers did not tell the entire story. The fourth time around, I built a little confidence, he said with a smile. I wasn't fully tapered for district, and I really didn't rest until this week. Poliak capped a brilliant prep career by defending his title in the 200-yard individual medley, winning in 146 five seconds ahead of runner-up Dylan Nelson of West Des Moines Valley. He backed that up by taking the 100 breaststroke title in 53.42 seconds. In most years, that performance would have likely been worthy of the swimmer of the meet honor, but that went to his iFly T- Club teammate, Owen Childs of Pleasant Valley, who set state records in winning the 100 freestyle and the 100 backstroke, along with being a part of two relay wins for the Spartans. That speaks to the level of talent in this meet, Poliak said. Nothing today was easy, and that shows how good the swimming is here in Iowa. In a team race, West Des Moines Valley came away with the title, scoring 235 points. Waukee was second, 219.5, and Lindmar had the best finish in school history, taking third with 187.5 points. Iowa City West was fifth, 168. The next stop for Poliak will be a collegiate career at Minnesota. His final event as a prep was something he will always remember. It worked out great. He said, I have a couple of club meets after. This was a great first step. I was really hoping to get a couple of state records, but that doesn't take anything away from the experience. All right, as I said earlier, today is, in fact, Super Bowl Sunday. Closer look at today's game. The teams are, of course, the San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs taking place at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas at 5.30 p.m., On your CBS affiliate this against the spread, we have 49ers 991 and Chiefs 13 and seven. The last meeting was the Chiefs beating the 49ers 44 to 23 on October 23rd, 2022 in Santa Clara, California. And in the last game, the 49ers beat the Lions 34 to 31 and the Chiefs beat the Ravens 17 to 10. Here are some 49ers to watch. Quarterback Brock Purdy, the third-youngest quarterback ever to start a Super Bowl, the 24-year-old Purdy can cap a remarkable rise from final pick of the 2022 draft to champion in less than two years. Purdy struggled in the rain in the divisional round against Green Bay and for the first half in the conference championship game against Detroit, but he has led back-to-back comeback wins. He has thrown for 519 yards and two TDs with one int this postseason. And Chiefs to watch, quarterback Patrick Mahomes, He can further cement his legacy as one of the greatest players in NFL history with his third Lombardi in his first six seasons as a starter, and perhaps even capture a third Super Bowl MVP to go with it. Mahomes sacrificed stats for wins most of the season, relying on the league's number two ranked defense while the Kansas City offense was scuffling. But he's been excelling in the playoff, throwing for 528 yards and five TDs with no interceptions. A key matchup, San Francisco DE Nick Bosa versus Kansas City Offensive Tackles. Bosa had two sacks in the NFC title game to give him a franchise record 10 in his postseason career. If Bosa can't get to Mahomes, he might be able to draw holding calls against one of the most penalty-prone units in the league. The Chiefs have been called for offensive holding a league-high 36 times in the regular season and playoffs. RT Jawan Taylor is tied for the most with eight, and LT Donovan Smith has four. And we end with stats and stuff. San Francisco is making its eighth Super Bowl appearance, tied for second most ever, and is seeking its record-tying sixth championship. The 49ers lost their two previous trips in 2019 and 2012 seasons and haven't won it all since 1994. San Francisco's 38 playoff wins are the most in NFL history. The 49ers are the eighth team to reach the Super Bowl after overcoming a second-half deficit in a divisional round and the conference championship game. Four of the previous seven won it all. Niners coach Kyle Shanahan is 8-3 in the playoffs, tied for second-best winning percentage for any coach with at least 10 games. San Francisco allowed 318 yards rushing the past two games, the most ever in the divisional round and conference championship game for a Super Bowl that reached the Super Bowl. And Purdy's four playoff wins are one shy of Ben Roethlisberger's record for the most in a player's first two seasons. And I personally am rooting for commercials and snacks and maybe seeing Taylor Swift. And finally today, the time machine. A look back at the people, places, and events in Eastern Iowa. Sky Patrol, Cedar Rapids Police City from Air for 35 Years by Diane Fannin Langton Correspondent. Many Cedar Rapidians remember the sound of helicopter rotors overhead and the bright spotlight that searched for lawbreakers during the 35 years that the Cedar Rapids Air Force patrolled the city skies. The use of helicopters in city law enforcement started in February 1972 when Cedar Rapids acquired a surplus National Guard OH-23C helicopter for $200, the cost of the paperwork. The three-passenger machine had cost the government about $52,000 when it was new, according to Mayor Don Canney. Canney listed a number of uses for the helicopter, search and rescue, traffic control, high-speed pursuit, emergency medical transportation, and assistance in natural disasters, among others. The chopper was given to Lynn County Civil Defense Agency and delivered to the Cedar Rapids Municipal Airport on March 23, 1972. Four months later, Lynn County Civil Defense Director Bill Bjorensen said two more surplus military helicopters and surplus parts had been donated to the agency by the Federal General Services Administration. The city had one mechanic to work on the choppers and two civil defense pilots who were qualified to fly them. The city issued special permits to use the helicopters in September 1972. A news story reported public reaction to the city's new acquisition, saying the choppers have been effectively dubbed the Cedar Rapids Air Force, Canny's copters, and probably even harsher names. Canny's response, they're tools and valuable tools, just like squad cars or fire engines. If they save just one life or help prevent one major crime, they'll be worth it, and people will see how important they are. The helicopters already had been used to search for a drowning victim and for missing persons. Four police officers and two firefighters signed up for lessons to fly the helicopters. A National Guard helicopter mechanic who worked at the Water Department was transferred to take care of the city's choppers. In 1975, the Cedar Rapids Aviation Department, then with four choppers, became a separate union even though the helicopters still were owned by Lynn County Civil Defense. Cedar Rapids Police were the most frequent users of the crafts, but the Parks Department used one to check water levels of the Cedar River, and the Planning Department used them for aerial surveys of rezoning issues. The city was using an unopened segment of Interstate 380 at 5th Street Southwest as a helicopter refueling site before establishing a municipal heliport and fueling site at the C Street Southwest Landfill in 1979. The time check St. Patrick's Neighborhood donated a 58-by-63-foot Quonset hut for use as a hangar. Members of the Iron Workers Local 89 Union dismantled the hut in two days to ready it for moving from J Avenue Northwest to the landfill. But when the moving day arrived, the dirt road leading to the site was impassable. Several quarries were called, and by that afternoon, more than 600 tons of gravel had been spread on the road. The Quonset was reassembled in four days on a concrete base. After 24 years of operation, the Aviation Department had six helicopters and two airplanes, and its first crash. In August 1996, a police helicopter crash-landed in a residential area. Pilot Kevin Mason reported he'd heard the engine stall and was able to guide the craft away from a tree in a house. One blade of the Hughes 269 was broken, and two were bent in the crash. The Jaws of Life was used to extract the injured pilot from the wreckage. The cause of the crash was not determined. Another crash happened again in June 1997 when two pilot officers were injured in a crash shortly after takeoff when the helicopter hit a power line. Police Chief Gary Hinsman in October 1985 announced he was moving the helicopter patrol to round-the-clock duty. Three days later, the chief was reportedly flying high when the helicopter's pilot spotted a burglar who just robbed a pharmacy on Johnson Avenue Northwest and pinpointed him with a spotlight. Noted Assistant Police Chief Jim Barnes, it's got to be a sick feeling for a guy who hears that helicopter and then sees that light coming at him. The police helicopter program ended in January 2007, when City Manager Jim Prosser recommended cutting it to save money. The City Council agreed. By then, the service was down to two helicopters. In April 2007, the city put its helicopters and equipment up for sale, netting $860,182. And that brings me to the end of reading the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 11th, 2024, on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. I have been your reader, Sharon Faldudo, reading to you from Coralville. Remember that you can access a recording of this or any other IRIS recording at any time on our website, iowaradioreading.org. I hope your team wins today. Thank you for listening.